Turning your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John and chapter 1. Gospel of John and chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 1 through 14 and then 29 through 34. Let's give our attention now to God's Word. Gospel of John, chapter 1, beginning with verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in verse 29... The next day, he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Thus far, God's Word. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, we call upon you once again that you would be merciful and gracious to us this day, that you would take your Word and you would use it to help us see and understand clearly the glory and greatness of our King and God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 
being a morning service, many of you will be unfamiliar with the fact that throughout the month of January in our Sunday evening services, we have been considering a number of the different names which are used for God throughout the scriptures. And those names highlight for us specific characteristics and attributes of God. Now, very quickly, I will summarize where we've been. Thus far, we have looked at the name Elohim, translated by a capital G, lowercase o-d, God, in your English translations. Here, we saw that God is the one who created the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We saw him as the only God. There's only one true and living God. And we see him in this name speaking to Abraham, I will be your Elohim, your God, and the God of your children after you. The second name that we considered was the name Jehovah, which is translated by capital L-O-R-D, all caps. And here we saw the God who is, the God who's eternal and everlasting The God who says, say to the children of Israel, I am sent me to you. God defines himself as the one who is. He also reveals himself as Jehovah, as the righteous and holy God. And then we saw him as the God of redemption. And it was not until he delivered the children of of Israel out of Egypt, And not until he redeemed them did they get the full glory and import of the name Jehovah. Thirdly, we looked at Jehovah Sabaoth. Not Jehovah of the Sabbath, but Jehovah Sabaoth, Lord of hosts. And here we saw the Lord of hosts who comforts the afflicted as he did Hannah in her distress when she called upon Jehovah Sabaoth. He gives courage to the weak, as he did David when he was facing Goliath. And he gives victory or conquest, as we said, to those that are helpless, as he did Hezekiah. And lastly, last week, we looked at El Shaddai, God Almighty, who is a God of of unbelievable, unspeakable power. He is a God of extraordinary blessing, and he is a God of astounding promises, like the promise he makes to Abraham when he is 100 years old and his wife 90. And he says, about a year from now, your wife is going to have a son. That's El Shaddai. Well, this morning we are concluding our series by turning our attention to one of the names in the New Testament, and that is the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Clearly delineated as such in Matthew 28 and verse 19, when Jesus gives his disciples the commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel, and 
make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We have this in substance in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 in verse 14. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, our Father, and the fellowship or communion of the Holy Spirit be with you. While we can say that each of the names we've considered from the Old Testament have placed an emphasis upon very important and very helpful details. These are elements of God's being and character that impact particularly our our prayer life as we call upon God in, in similar situations by these names. It also impacts the way we live when we realize who we're dealing with. Like Abraham, for those many years, had walked with God, but it was not until he was 100 years old that he began to grasp exactly, this is God Almighty. This is a God of great power and blessing and promise. So each of these names that we have considered have been significant and important to our thinking, to our praying, and to our way of life. But my friends, as we come to this name, this New Testament name, this opens up something for us that is truly unique about God. This is something that no other being in the entire universe throughout the history of mankind has ever claimed. This is only true of our God. And that is that the God of the Bible is a triune God. Our God exists in three distinct persons in one God. And brethren, this is one of the most amazing revelations about God that we see anywhere in the whole of Scripture. At the same time, it's one of the most difficult things that are revealed for us to understand. And one of the reasons why it is so difficult is there is absolutely nothing, no one, no thing, that we can compare to this. There's no example that we can use to say, this is, this is what the Trinity is like. There's no illustration that we can point to and say a, a triad of persons in, in God is like this. No example. No illustration. As the prophets often said, there is no one like our God, like the God of the Bible.
And until you know God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you don't know God in his fullness. It is this name that, that unfolds for us the fullness of the beauty and the glory and the power as nothing else can or will. We're going to look at three distinct things. The mysterious nature of the triune Godhead. We're going to talk about the individual actions of the triune Godhead. And we're going to look lastly at the combined power of the triune Godhead. Let's begin with the mysterious nature of our triune God. To say that the Trinity is a mystery would probably be the understatement of the year. You realize that it took the early church almost 300 years just to formulate and summarize in the Nicene Creed these three elements. We believe in God the Father Almighty. We believe in the one Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. And men over the the years and over the centuries have struggled to explain this doctrine and have tried in various ways to illustrate it. Now, when I was still a teenage a boy, very early coming to faith um, as a teenager, I was very easily convinced of the doctrine of the Trinity by a couple of illustrations that people use. And people would say, well, it's like, it's like a man who can be a grandfather, and he can be a father, and he can be a son. But, of course, you realize that's all describing the same person who appears in three different roles or three different ways. Another common illustration was it's like water. Water can be a liquid, like water you get out of the tap, or water can be a solid when you put it in the freezer and it turns to ice, or it could be a vapor in in the form of steam. But again, the illustration is not equivalent to what the scriptures talk about in the Trinity. This is the same substance, yes, but it's just appearing in three different forms, not three individuals. The biblical doctrine of the Trinity does not teach that God appears in three different forms. Sometimes he appears as the Father, sometimes he appears as the Son, sometimes he appears as the Holy Spirit. No, what the scriptures teach is that there are three distinct persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Spirit and each person individually is equally and fully God. Therefore, we look at this text in John 1, and we're not 
looking at this passage as, as a time to exposit every detail that we have read here, but there are some interesting factors that help us to understand the three persons. Notice the way John begins in verse 1. In the beginning, the word was. In other words, before everything began, the word, which by the way is a clear reference to Jesus Christ, look at verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Clearly, the word is Christ. But John tells us that word existed before everything came into being. The word was in the beginning. And then he continues. He says that the word was with God. Literally, before God, before the face of God. In other words, the Son was not the Father. The Father is not the Son. The Son, the Word of God, existed from the beginning or before the beginning, but He was with God. He was distinct from God. He was separate from God. And yet, the Word was God. So he was eternal. He was in the beginning. He was with God, separate from and distinct from God, but he was fully and equally God. That's the picture that we have of the Trinity. Now, one interesting factor here in John 1 is that John not only makes reference to God the Father and Christ the Son, but then in verse 33, he speaks of, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and remaining upon him. And in verse 33, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So in John 1, we have the Father, we have the Son, and we have the Holy Spirit. It may not be easy for us to understand. We might not be able to explain it. We might not be able to illustrate it in a rational way. But brothers and sisters, we believe in the teaching of the scriptures of a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because that's the way the Bible represents our God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Over 250 times God is referred to as Father. You may know from Ephesians chapter 4 the way that the, the Apostle Paul describes him there when he says there is one Lord, one body, one faith, 
one baptism, one God and Father of all. Or in Romans 1, in Romans 1 and chapter 1 and verse 7, we have these words, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And any serious examination of the scriptures is going to find a similar picture time and time again. God being presented to us as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each one fully and equally God. I just don't think there's a better way to understand who God is than this. Clearly distinguished three persons and yet all equally God. Go, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. In Revelation chapter 4, where we have this, this glorious picture of worship before the throne of God, it's clearly the Father that they are worshiping. This is the, the Son doesn't appear until chapter 5. When the lamb comes and takes the scroll out of him who sits upon the throne. There can be no clearer picture of two distinct individuals, fully God and equally God and both worthy of worship. So we have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. There's just no clearer or finer summary of this truth than what we find in our shorter catechism. If you're not familiar with it, you look in the back of your hymnals, you'll find questions five and six where the question is asked, are there more gods than one? And the answer is, there is but one only. One God, the living and true God. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God. And I wish we had time to unpack the language. The same in substance and equal in power and glory. It's a mystery, the Trinity. Uh, we believe it because this is what the Word of God teaches. Secondly, we want to look at the individual actions of this triune Godhead. Now, there are a number of ways in which a clear understanding of the biblical teaching of the triune God will affect us. And I think perhaps foremost is the way we worship and you look at Revelation 4, and you look at Revelation 5, and you see that this understanding of God and of Christ as different and yet equal, equally divine, leads to worship. Now, what does 
God the Father do? Well, in Revelation 4.11, it says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things. And really, throughout the Bible, when, when God the Father is spoken of, it's often directing our attention to the fact that God created the world and everything in it. And my friends, that always leads those who are making that statement or comprehending that statement, it always leads to worship. But God also created each of us. You you realize this is not something that just happened back in the first century or what's going on in the eternal realm. Now we're talking about here and now because every single one of us was created by God. I think one of the most fabulous passages about this is Jeremiah 1.5. When God calls Jeremiah to go and serve him as a prophet, and Jeremiah says, you know, I'm not the right man. And you know how God corrects his attitude and stirs him to devotion? In verse 5, he says, before I formed you, In the womb, I knew you, and I ordained you to become a prophet of the Most High. My friends, that was a profound encouragement to Jeremiah. God calls us to serve him, to offer ourselves as living sacrifices every day of our lives. And sometimes we might be tempted to say, I'm such a, a sinner. I'm weak. I'm frail. I, I, I just can't do it. We need to hear this language from Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I set my love upon you. And I adorn, uh, uh, ordained your entire life in my service. You know how the psalmist speaks of this in Psalm 139. In Psalm 139 and verse 13, he says, You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. what, What does that knowledge of God as the one who created, who formed, who fashioned every detail of our being. What does that have? What effect does that have upon the psalmist? It elicits sweet and edifying meditations upon God. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. Excuse me. So, a knowledge of God as the creator, the Father as the creator of the world and of us has an immediate effect upon those who understand it. And we can go beyond that. We can go to, to here in the, the language of Psalm 103, which many of us will be quite familiar with. And what do we see? We see numerous fatherly actions that God does. 
He forgives our transgressions. He heals our diseases. He provides physically for our needs. And then in verse 13, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. My friends, you may not be a father. You might not know immediately what what the psalmist is describing, but I think most of us know. We've seen that that child go over and try to pick up some heavy object, and he can't even begin to budget. And the father comes and says, son, let me help you, and takes hold of that burden and lifts it up. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities us. He knows our weakness. And to know this, to understand this, when you think of God, you think of a father who pities you, who knows your your needs, and that encourages you. It gives you assurance to know that he's not going to abandon you because you're weak. He knows that. But he's going to come alongside of you and help you. And that produces gratitude, produces praise and worship in our hearts. And then we have the words of Hebrews chapter 12. Listen to what he says in verse 9. Furthermore, we had human fathers who corrected us. Has your father ever corrected you, young people? Probably so. And what do you do? You, you hear them. You respect them for that. We, we had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily Be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live. This Father in heaven not only made us, not only helps us, not only encourages us, he's he's not afraid to correct us. And if we persist in our wrongdoing, he's not afraid to discipline us. And what does verse 11 of Hebrews 12 say? No chastening seems to be joyful for the present. When you are chastened, when you are disciplined, it usually hurts. But what does he say? It's painful, but nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. This Father, my friends, God the Father, corrects and he disciplines because he knows that is going to end up producing the fruit of righteousness. Remember how how the writer of Hebrews puts it, don't despise the chastening of the Lord. It's for your good and it produces fruit. He trains us by it. Well, what has God the Son done? You think of the actions of God the Son, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and what comes to your mind? I think, without question, our minds gravitate towards the cross, 
towards the sacrifice that our Savior made in our behalf of how he bore the wrath of God and secured for us eternal salvation. We think of the great work of redemption. That's what the the host of heaven see in Revelation 5. You are worthy, O Lamb of God, to receive glory and honor and power and wisdom and strength and blessing because you redeemed us by your blood. And you have, have blessed us. You've washed us from our sins. You've cleansed us. And you've given us life eternal. That's the apex, brothers and sisters. The great work of redemption which the Son of God has accomplished on our behalf. But listen, there's something that happens before we usually come to that realization. There's something that the Son does in the very beginning of God's work in our lives. And you find it over in Matthew Chapter 11 and verse 27. Listen to his words. Jesus says, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Listen closely. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son reveals him. You understand that? No one knows the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son reveals him. My friends, you cannot know God the Father apart from Christ. Can't be done. The Son is the one who reveals the Father to us. And that's why Jesus can say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. He has to reveal the Father. He has to cleanse us in order that we might know God. We are utterly and entirely dependent upon the Son to reveal to us the Father. You know, people love to talk about the most fundamental attribute, perhaps, of God, the love of God. The heavens declare his glory. But you know what? You can't know God, the Father, as a God of love, apart from Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You can't even know God as a God of love without seeing the cross, without understanding the depth of the love of the Father for your soul. And you see it in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will never know God 
as your father until the son reveals him to you. John 1.18, which we did not read in our reading, but is fairly well known. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. The Son declares, He teaches, He shows us who the Father is. And then, of course, we read in John 17 and verse 6, What Jesus says, very interesting language in John 17 and verse 6. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men you have given me out of the world. It's the Son who makes known to us the Father. Well, what has the Holy Spirit done? These individual actions of each member of the Trinity. I'll I'll be honest, when I reached this point in my preparation, I was like, what on earth was I thinking? That we could actually cover all of this in one message. We could have spent a month of Sundays just unpacking these three points or sub-points. Let me highlight a few particulars. In John 3, we have the fundamental passage on regeneration or being born again. Striking, my friends, that here is this religious leader, this dedicated man, very religious, very excelling in all the aspects of the Jewish religion, a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he comes to Jesus and he says, I want to know more. Explain these things to me. And you know what the first thing Jesus tells him? First thing. You must be born again. You must be born again. My friends, you may be here this morning. You may be a very religious person. You might be very devout in coming to church. You may have read many Christian books. But listen, before you can even begin to understand who God is, you must be born again. You must be born again. As our Savior says again and again, born of the Spirit. Your heart has to be changed. You must receive life, spiritual life from the blessed God. You must be born again. Has that happened? Has your heart been changed? Has God taken away that heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh? Has he put his spirit within you and caused you to love him and to know him and to revel in in the forgiveness of sin and the, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit? That's what Jesus tells Nicodemus. 
And my friends, it is the heart, it is the Holy Spirit that must regenerate. It is the Holy Spirit that takes away that heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. Your heart has to be changed. This is the new birth. The Holy Spirit is the one who illuminates our minds. He turns the light on so we can see and understand the truths of God. He is the one that convicts us of our sin. He is the one that shows us and points us to Christ. He is the one that teaches us the ways of God. He is the one that comforts us in our afflictions. He is the one that gives access into every blessing of salvation. Brother and I would ask you this morning to stoop down, as it were, and gaze Gaze upon this glorious triune God. Gaze upon these works of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this awesome triune God will fill your heart and mind with worship. True worship. He will fill you with Praise. He will fill you with prayer. He will fill you with joy and peace and assurance through the Holy Spirit. These are the individual works of the triune God. Well, lastly, <clears throat> the combined power of the triune Godhead. This biblical teaching regarding the Trinity is perhaps one of the most intriguing but it's also one of the most soul-stirring doctrines in all the Bible. Because it's when we understand this God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are realizing that the good news is not just Jesus loves you. It's that the whole triune Godhead is engaged in bringing sinners, those dead in trespasses and sins to new life, life eternal in God. The whole Godhead is at work in bringing about our salvation. All three members of the Trinity are working together. They're not in competition for your affection. They're not trying to glorify one over the other. They're all three working together to bring us to a state of salvation. We don't have time to turn there, but John 6, 44 Jesus said, no man can come to me unless the Father draw him. And then Jesus told us, no man knows the Father unless the Son reveals him. You see, they're both working towards the same end. And then, of course, we have the Spirit of God working in all these ways to bring us to enlighten us, to convict us, 
to fill us with joy. The only way, the only place in which we see this work taking place is in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, John 1 are not the only places. I would ask you to turn one more passage, and that is in Ephesians chapter 1. It, it, it's just stunning when you see the, the full-orbed way in which the Trinity is at work in bringing us to salvation. What do we have? Grace to you and peace in verse 2 of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. What are those blessings? Verse 4, he chose us before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us unto adoption as children. He is the one who is doing these works In verse 7, we read that it's in him, that is in Christ. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins through his blood. We are redeemed, we are forgiven, we are accepted in the beloved. In verse 13, you know what's coming, don't you? Verse 13, we hear, in him you also trusted The word of truth, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom you having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all working together to bring you to faith, even from before the foundation of the world, choosing you, predestinating you to adoption as sons, forgiving you, and then sealing you forever with the Holy Spirit. He is the guarantee of your eternal salvation. It's not how well you do, brothers and sisters. It's not how good you are or how many good works you do. It's God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who guarantees your everlasting salvation. My friends, do you see the picture here in this work of salvation? It's not God saying, I've done all I can for you. I sure hope you choose me. It's God coming and saying, no, I chose you. I predestinated you. I redeemed you. And I have given my spirit to guarantee your eternal salvation. Because of the combined power of the triune Godhead, Jesus can say in John 6, 37, all that the Father has given me shall come to me. Not I hope so, not most. All that the Father has given me shall come because the whole triune God 
is working for our salvation. And we can say with the Apostle Paul, nothing, nothing, not in this world or in the next, not life nor death, not principalities nor powers, nothing can separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Lord our God, how can we even begin to comprehend the riches of your glory and power, of your great love, of the work you are doing to bring sinners to eternal life. O Lord, move in our midst this day by your power and for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.